welcome to the first issue of Telesperience, the new newsletter for the internet, communications and IT industries. Telesperience analyzes technology at the business level, looking how it affects both the customer and commercial experience. Coming up in this issue, Darren asks, what is Telesperience? Lighthouse AR's Duncan Chapel and Sons Gordon Davis tell us about the changing structure of the analyst market and how companies' AR programs are addressing this. We discuss the news with Volubil's Mike Frayne, Steve Chase of Telarex, and Danny Dix of Innovation Observatory. And Teresa talks to Pete Sokoloff about M&A activity in the comms market. Don't forget, you can find a free issues paper on Telecom's M&A downloadable from our website at talesperience.com, as well as a full list of contributors to this issue. And to keep the Talesperience going between issues, check out our blog at microsperience.com. It's February 2009, and this is Talesperience. At Talesperience, we constantly ask the question, how does this technology, standard, regulation or method affect the telesperience? But what do we mean by that? The first element of telesperience refers to the market we cover. The telecommunications industry has evolved from simple devices to transmit messages over distance, such as smoke signals, drums, semaphore, flags or heliographs, to a sophisticated, multi-trillion dollar industry that covers virtually every part of the globe. As the market has grown and diversified, industry participants have sometimes attempted to rename it in order to encompass new methods of communication and new technologies. Despite these efforts, however, the telecommunications label has persisted. Those with a knowledge of etymology know that this adaptable description is just as accurate today as it was when Wheatstone and Cook invented the electric telegraph in 1837 and Alexander Graham Bell invented the telephone in 1876. The Greek word tele simply means far off or at a distance and has been combined with many other words to denote various methods of communicating over distance. Telecommunications therefore encompasses a wide variety of technologies that can be used for distance communication, including voice and data over mobile and fixed telephony networks, and latterly, the remarkable communications infrastructure that is the Internet. Telesperience analyzes this diverse and fast-changing market, but focuses on a particular aspect of it. This is the closely associated concepts of the customer and commercial experience. But what do we mean by the customer experience. Simply that this is the totality of all the experiences a customer has with their telecom supplier. It's affected by many things, including the ease and efficiency of the whole order, billing and payment cycle, the quality of service a customer receives, and how suppliers deal with their queries and complaints. We consider how each of these aspects contributes to the overall telesperience. Whether this is a direct customer touchpoint, as in the case of call centers, IVR systems or bills, or something that may be hidden deeper down in the telecommunications infrastructure, 
but still contributes to the quality of the customer experience, such as a service provisioning system that delivers an ordered service reliably and on time, or a security solution that prevents your mobile wallet from being plundered. The novelty of simply being able to use telecommunication services has long worn off in many world markets, as coverage, price and even services cease to differentiate service providers, customers start to demand and expect a better service experience from their supplier. Delivering against this offers the promise of longer-lasting and more fruitful relationships with customers, the ability to attract customers from rivals, and the possibility of driving down costs associated with complaints and churn. However, the customer experience is far from simple comprising many distinct but interlinked elements that need to be optimised, not just for all customers, but for groups of customers, perhaps even for individual customers. Closely related to this, however, are the needs of the service providers themselves. The telecommunications industry is, like any other, shaped by economics, by supply and demand, and by the need to make a profit. So the commercial aspects of the customer relationship are extremely important. All changes have to lead to positive commercial results. Ultimately, either higher revenues, decreased costs, or a better competitive positioning. Telesperience is always mindful of commercial demands. We don't believe in investing in technology for technology's sake, but rather only if it delivers some business benefit to the purchaser. The final aspect of Telesperience is that we believe very strongly that as the current telecommunications market changes and adapts, as a result of increasing numbers and diversity of industry players, technological change, the needs of new customer types and evolving business models, it's important for industry participants to frankly exchange ideas and views and to share their hard-won experience. By doing this, we can all learn and benefit both individually and as an industry. In a mere 17 years, we will celebrate the 150th anniversary of the invention of the telephone. Who knows what our markets will look like? But by sharing our insights and ideas, we can help ensure a positive telesperience for all and a profitable telesperience for the industry. The industry analyst market comprises a wide range of companies from major traditional firms such as Gartner, IDC, Informa, Frost & Sullivan, Yankee & Forrester, to mid-tier players such as Analysis Mason. There's also an increasing number of smaller firms, many of which use innovative business models such as the likes of Redmonk, Quocerca, Freeform Dynamics and Springboard Research. With the increasing range of analyst firms, new analyst business models and new ways of engaging with them, analyst relations is changing rapidly. To find out more about these changes, Teresa spoke to Lighthouse AR's Duncan Chapel and Sons Gordon Davis. Thank you, Darren. We're pleased to welcome Duncan Chapel, the, Ma the Managing Director of Lighthouse Analyst Relations. Lighthouse is a research company that follows the analyst market and helps global telecoms operators and vendors understand how analysts are influencing the end users of their research. Before working at Lighthouse, Duncan also founded and directed the international analyst relations business at Broder Worldwide, 
and was previously an analyst at Ovum. Duncan, can I begin by asking you a question that's harder than it looks? How would you define industry analysts? Hi, Teresa. Well, it, it is a very difficult question because there are lots of people who look like consultants or analysts or even high-powered journalists. And uh, it's very hard, even for people in large organizations that work with a lot of analyst companies, to tell the difference between a real, uh, a real analyst and somebody who, who isn't one. The definition that we would use is that an analyst is somebody who works for an organization that's following an independent research agenda into telecommunications or technology and is using that research to help client organizations which are investing in technology, either, either financially by investing in stocks and shares or investing in technology by using it to drive their operations. And that means that industry analysts are people who are who are following their own research direction and are helping people to make better decisions with technology. Duncan, can you tell us why do companies engage with analysts and how does this differ from how they engage with journalists? I think that there are two main differences between, between the way that companies are, are engaging uh, with, uh, with industry analysts. The first major difference is that most organizations that are communicating with analysts are doing that as part of a two-way conversation. So you're seeing organizations that are communicating to, to industry analyst firms like Gartner and Ovo and, and IDC, and they're simultaneously consuming information and really using information from analysts to help them make their own decisions about the directions that they're taking. And they're trying to communicate with industry analysts in order to influence what analysts are saying about, about the rest of the, the world. So I'd say that's one major difference, that many organizations that communicate with journalists are pushing information out to journalists and aren't really interested in journalists' own take on that information. Typically, when, when organizations are pushing information out to journalists, really they're hoping that journalists kind of repeat what they are saying. And they're only really interested in evaluating how far the analyst, uh, how far a journalist does or does not kind of repeat the basic messaging of the organization. Now, it's very different when you look at the way that organizations are communicating with industry analysts. Definitely, they're communicating with industry analysts because their hope is that analysts uh, talk more favorably about their organization. But also, analysts are in a very unique situation that they have a very deep and ongoing discussion with users and producers of high technology and regulators of technology and telecommunications markets, which means that analysts have the kind of deep insight that journalists unfortunately don't typically have. So that means that, that when organizations are communicating with analysts, they're both consuming and trying to kind of co-produce the ideas of the, of the, um, of the industry analyst. I'd say there's also a second major difference in the way that people are communicating with, um, with analysts compared to the way that they communicate with journalists. And that's to do with the kind of the, the time orientation, the topicality, the newsworthiness of what they're talking about. Because typically when organizations are communicating with journalists, they've got something new, something that's true today that wasn't true yesterday. And they really want journalists to pick up on what's new and different and to push that information out into, uh, into the media. Typically, 
that reflects journal, uh, journalists' uh, information interests. Journalists are really interested in things that are true today, that weren't true yesterday. They're really interested in things that are topical. And something that isn't newsworthy generally isn't very interesting to, uh, to a journalist. Now, analysts have got very different perspectives. Often they're, they're not particularly interested in something that's just been announced today, because often things that haven't been announced today aren't proven or maybe don't really exist or, or aren't generally available yet. Typically, analysts are trying to get a broader picture of a longer-term evolution in the market. And that means that they've got very broad information needs, and they're not only interested in things that are true now, but they're interested in, in looking at a long-term evolution. They've got very broad information needs, and when they're collecting information, they may not use it straight away. So if you, if, uh, if you meet a journalist, or you give them information, typically you'll expect the journalist to write something about it today, next week, sometime this month, uh, probably, probably fairly recently. But this longer time orientation of analysts means that they may not use the information straight away. And when they do use it, you may not know. You know if a journalist writes something, they'll write about it. It'll be in the newspaper. You can probably find out. But a lot of the work that analysts do is in conversations and in confidential uh, engagements with clients where telecommunications company that's given information for analysts may never know whether or how that information has been processed and served up to the clients of the analyst. So it's a very different communications environment for, uh, for people who are speaking to them. That certainly makes it a lot more difficult for companies to understand and to manage. My view on this is that reporters report, um, they make statements about what's happening without necessarily any value judgment to them, whereas with analysts it's much more to do with opinion and interpretation and that very much these two cross over at some point. So a high-end journalist, for example, might very well have considerable knowledge and insight, although, as you've said, fundamentally they're very different jobs. That's true. And it's useful to think about the difference this way, that, that uh, an, an analyst can have an opinion, and that opinion is newsworthy, whereas a journalist might have the same opinion, but the journalist can't simply state that and put that in their own article. You know, if the journalist wants to get a particular opinion across in an article, they actually need to hunt around for somebody who's a kind of reputable, independent third party and, and get a quote from that person that says what, what the journalist's own conclusion is. And then the journalist has to present somebody else's opinion uh, r rather than presenting their own. You know, it's very, uh, it's, uh, it's actually quite a frustration for journalists. That many of them, of course, you know, they're, they're equally bright as analysts. Uh, their only difference is that uh, often they're a little bit more extrovert, and you know, uh, you know they're, 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 they hunt around for information in, in different ways. But journalists' opinions can't be taken seriously uh, in the same way that analysts' uh, opinions can be. My feeling is that the analyst landscape and how analyst firms go to market is changing substantially at the moment. What's your thoughts on this, Duncan? It's, it's changing amazingly. And the change that we're seeing in the analyst landscape is actually quite contradictory because we're seeing a big segmentation of the market with very different trends going on in different ends of the, of the, of the analyst market. The overall trend is of growth. And in fact, we, we typically see this accelerated slightly during recession. So during the last recession, spending on analysts grew at the beginning of the 1990s, especially by end-user organizations. End-user organizations become much more cautious and defensive during recessions, and they really need to kind of outsource the blame 
uh, for for potentially bad decisions. So the use of end user, the use by end user organisations of analysts typically accelerates during during recession, and you've got more opportunity for for custom consulting projects, uh, helping helping people through decision making processes. But we're seeing a lot of a lot of um, segmentation in the market. So at the top end, with um, large analyst firms that are serving end user organisations with revenues of one billion dollars and above. There's typically ongoing consolidation here. Buyers of analyst services become more and more conservative, and they want to make sure that they're buying from very large organizations. So a great example of this uh, is the U.S. federal government. The U.S. federal government is a you know, very, very large buyer of, uh, of analyst services. And almost everything that they spend, something like you know, 90, 95% of spending by the federal government, goes on, on Gartner Group. Um, now, Gartner Group has great insight, um, but it's not that Gartner is the only provider, but that large organizations are very conservative, and the U.S. government and other organizations, they tend to buy only from large suppliers. And that means at the top end, there's a continual consolidation where firms like Meta Group have been bought by Gartner, where firms like Giga Group have been bought by Forrester. So the top end of the market continually acquires mid-sized firms, and you, you have a kind of continual uh, grossing up at the, uh, at the top end of the market. However, you've seen changes at the top end, which are particularly marked by changes in the delivery model, in clients' expectations, and in, in the way the internet is being used, and also changes in the way that these organizations are trying to get more profitable. So the delivery model is changing so that now clients are getting, as well as research, they're getting more access to community events, to, to peer networking, to, um, to rapid inquiry services, uh, to a whole series of, of other things which are, more than, which are more than research. And people at the, at the bottom end of the market, I think, have, have found that through using the internet, they're able to access a much wider range of analysts. So it's never been easier for one person with a laptop and a telephone line, or even two people, three people, or four people, to set up a new firm and really win leadership. You know, it's very interesting that, for example, somewhere in the middle of Sweden is a, is a telecoms analyst who's a specialist in men's chips. Most people in the world don't know what a men's chip is, don't care about it. Some people do care about it, and everybody beats a path to this guy's door. You know, he's one person, he's a leading expert. All of, the late, uh, all of the major firms are, are, are using him. Ten years ago, it wouldn't have been possible for this guy to, to build visibility, to, to build niche leadership. But now, because of the use of the Internet as a way of acquiring information, sharing information, publicizing ourselves, discussing, now it's possible for, the, the, for, the, for this change in the delivery model to hugely change uh, the way in which people are consuming analyst research. And that has led to the other major change, which is lots of fragmentation at the bottom of the market. Now we have more analyst firms, I think, than ever before. Um, here at Lighthouse, we're tracking now something like 800 analyst firms around the world. So uh, you know, it's a, it's a big increase on what we on what we used to uh, see. And this added conservatism by buyers in a recession typically increases the market for custom consulting, for very labor-intensive, time-consuming. Uh, customized consultancy engagements, 
And because big firms like Garner and Forrester are not very interested in that kind of work, it's very labor-intensive, not very profitable, we're seeing huge opportunities for organizations in the middle of the market and at the bottom end who are prepared to provide much more customized consulting services based on analytical research to, uh, to the client base of the, of the analyst firms. So that means that we're seeing growth at the top end as organizations become more conservative, but also, quite ironically, growth at the bottom end as people are able to come in and compete not only on price but also on value by providing a much more customized uh, kind of uh, market analyst service. What are you hearing from, from your clients in terms of what they'd like to see more of from analyst firms and where are their frustrations? Yes, I, I, I think it's fair to say that, that this fragmentation is very hard to understand and, and people just perceive uh, change that's very hard for them to really wrap their head around. I'd say there are, there's a lot of contradiction. When companies are thinking of the work that they're doing with, with Gartner and Forrester, they're seeing a lot of change and a lot of inconsistency. So, for example, both Gartner and Forrester, which are the two major analyst organizations, have repackaged their work over the last couple of years so that they're trying to deliver research that's focused on the way that users work rather than the way that technologies are divided. So they're selling role-based research, so one view in the research for marketing managers, another one for telecommunications managers, another one for analyst relations managers, rather than dividing the research in the, in the old way by telecommunications, by software, by the, by the various technology silos. This is really hard for some people to, to accept and to understand, and makes it harder for people to use the research because it's not presented in the same way. And the other reality is that many of these firms are actually producing less research, and especially less deep research. So the volume of research coming out from any of these analyst firms is declining. And even though firms like Gartner, for example, are dramatically increasing the number of staff, they're actually increasing the number of salespeople. They're not dramatically increasing the number of analysts. In fact, some firms recently have been making analysts redundant, including Gartner. And that means that in a number of areas, there's less research coming out, and, and that is very frustrating for organizations. However, the flip side is that as, the, um, as these larger analyst firms grow and become more professional, actually they become a little bit easier to work with. You know, the sales managers become a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more experienced, a little bit more compliant. So when we talk to our clients, there's a contradiction that on the one hand, there's more frustration with the research, with the volume of research, with the quality of the research, all the research seems to be getting a lot more mechanized and less substantial and, and, and the insights seem to be less striking. But on the other hand, it's actually getting a little bit easier to work with firms as they become more professional and more profitable. Uh, then they're able to deliver a more consistent client experience. Thanks for that, Duncan. I thought it might be interesting at this point to talk to someone who was involved in running AR programs from the vendor side. Gordon Davis, who many of you are probably familiar with from his time at Analysis, is now the Senior Communications Manager for Sun Microsystems Sales and Services Organisation in Europe. Gordon works with, with colleagues in a range of corporate functions to manage interactions uh, with a number of stakeholders, including analysts. Gordon, can you tell us how Sun's analyst programme is organised? Sun's Global Sales and Services is a matrix organisation, which means it's organised by both territory and by practice. The practices are systems, software, storage and services. 
The advantage for stakeholders such as analysts is that this matrix organization provides multiple lenses with which to view the performance of the company. The internet has changed the way that Sun engages with analyst audiences. Sun used to host a single annual analyst summit in San Francisco for both financial and industry analysts. On advice of participants, Sun has moved to a model that offers more frequent interaction between analysts and Sun's management team and more targeted events, for example, dedicated updates for industry analysts. Analyst events are now primarily delivered over the internet through interactive webcasts. Um, I think this is very important um, because it's, um, it, it, it demonstrates the capability of um, network computing to, um, to engage with, um, with audiences. So it's not just a broadcast, it is a, um, uh, an interactive um, opportunity for uh, global analysts. Um, as Sun's business um, shifts more and more to um, growth markets and emerging markets, um, we obviously need to be able to um, uh, offer an opportunity for, for analysts in those regions to participate. So um, moving towards a, a web-based model away from a, a centralized um, uh, face-to-face model um, it, it is an important part of the overall um, analyst program strategy. Gordon, can you tell us how Sun engages with analysts? Communications within and outside of Sun are ultimately um, about individuals' responsibility. Hundreds of uh, Sun employees um, already blog um, on the the Sun corporate uh, blog role um, from the CEO downwards, um, and that includes um, employees across all business functions. So this community of bloggers offers um, an incredible barometer for analysts to measure the mood within a company uh, in near, near real time and gather kind of insight that was um, almost impossible to obtain in such quantity and quality even a few years ago. Um, however, the, the kind of information that um, may be disseminated through blogs um, isn't that which can be easily absorbed within analyst traditional tools such as spreadsheets. So um, I think the, the onus is now very much on, on analysts to work out how they, they come to grips with um, such an active vocal um, community uh, of employees from within a company um, and uh, those, are, those are employees who are trusted to um, communicate Sun's business uh, beyond the corporate firewall um, to, the, um, uh, to the wider public which includes, which includes analysts. You come from an analyst background Gordon, I know you worked at Analysis Mason for a number of years so having been an analyst does that give you a better insight into what analysts need? The experience of, of having had several years' experience on, on the analyst side of the industry uh, has proved invaluable um, upon my return to the vendor side of the industry. Um, the benefit is not um, not necessarily tactical, i.e. being able to play devil's advocate by anticipating the kind of questions that analysts could could ask in, in ahead of a, an analyst engagement um, and therefore preparing executives accordingly. Um, the real value, I think, is um, strategic. Um, it lies in um, uh, obtaining a broader, deeper understanding of, of, of the technology industry and the strategies of Sun's customers. Uh, I, I, I'm personally very grateful um, uh, to have been involved in the industry analyst um, side of the industry um, because it's given me, as I say, a much deeper understanding of Sun's customers' customers in the telecoms and entertainment sector. And that research ultimately enriches my own understanding of Sun's corporate strategy, how Sun engages with um, 
uh, with network equipment providers, uh, telecoms operators, uh, broadcasters, and content providers. Um, so in turn, that enables me to position some more accurately to, um, to various stakeholders, including uh, industry analysts. Thanks for that, Gordon. It just remains to ask Duncan what his top tips are for better analyst relations. I think there were two um, kind of bottom line takeaways from all of this. One is when you're engaging with analysts, understand that they don't need the news. They need a lot of perspective, a lot of information. And really that means that you have to let them lead the conversation. You have to find out what the information is that they need and try to respond to that and then build up a long-term relationship based on meeting their information needs. But you also need to understand this change in segmentation and in delivery. Don't pay too much attention to the large firms and don't think that they're going to want to do very deep analysis. Make sure that you're paying attention to this long tail of analyst organizations pushing out information and trying to build relationships across both large firms and small firms. Obviously, that, that's something that we can help organizations with if they want to identify the broad landscape of analysts that are available to influence. So that was Teresa talking to Duncan Chappell of Lighthouse AR and Gordon Davis of Sun Microsystems. Duncan has a range of information and resources for those interested in analyst relations available from his website, www.lighthousear.com, including his AR blog and his free monthly newsletter, Analyst Equity. Next in Talisperience, the news highlights followed by February's news review. This month, Vodafone announced it was negotiating a deal with Orange in the UK to share the costs of technology, engineering and maintenance of their network base stations. Analysis Mason released a report that argues that BT will face a very tough year due to a decline in revenues from fixed call and broadband reaching saturation in the UK market. Rapidly saturating broadband means we are entering a new phase for fixed telecoms, said the report's author Rupert Wood. Wood continued, Many players will draw back from next generation broadband, as it is open to question whether they will make a return on all that investment in fibre. In contrast, the European Commission approved the Portuguese telecom regulator's proposals to deregulate some parts of the wholesale broadband market, covering around 61% of all Portuguese broadband lines. The EU has also announced €1 billion Euro to extend and upgrade high-speed internet in rural communities. The money will be used by the EU's Rural Development Fund to cover the white spots on Europe's broadband map. Brazilian telecoms operator OI conclude the acquisition of fellow Brazilian operator Brazil Telecom. Strategy Analytics is forecasting a grim year for handset manufacturers, predicting that sales of handsets will fall by 9% in 2009. We expect the first half of 2009 to be very weak as the industry is hit by a double whammy of slowing post-holiday shipments in developed markets and subdued demand during the normally buoyant Chinese New Year in Asia, the firm said. It forecast 1.08 billion handsets would be sold this year, down from 1.18 billion in 2008. This view was backed by handset manufacturer Nokia, which announced it would be cutting production at its Salo plant in Finland. 
Nokia says demand is falling due to reluctance for consumers to spend because of the recession and because large inventories were built up by phone sellers at the end of last year. Observers are now watching Texas Instruments, who make chips for Nokia. Good news for this hard-hit market came in the form of Docomo, agreeing to provide 15 billion yen of research and development aid to handset manufacturers, including NEC, Fujitsu, Panasonic and Sharp. Other NEP news. Alcatel-Lucent posted a £4.67 billion loss this month, while Ericsson's network business posted results 11% up on last year, with profits up a respectable 31%. Ericsson laid off around 5,000 staff last year, and more cuts are expected. There are a lot of rumours circulating about BT this month. The Guardian reported that BT is allegedly in talks with T-Mobile and 3 about launching a mobile phone operation. Discussions are said to be at an early stage, but if a deal is agreed, this will mark out a radical new direction for BT, which withdrew from the mobile market in 2001 when Cellnet was demerged. BT is also said to be sticking to its plans to deploy Form. Form's CEO stated to the Dow Jones Newswire that his product would most definitely be live across the BT broadband network by the end of 2009. When it was revealed last year that BT and other UK operators have been testing Form's Webwise product, a product that uses deep package inspection to target advertising, there was considerable negative backlash in the UK general and tech press. BT declined to comment when the story leaked out this week. The UK regulator Ofcom has also been in the news, topping the ECTA scorecard and being lauded as the best telecoms regulator in Europe. Spain slips to 13th place in ECTA's regulation effectiveness ranking. Greece, Czech Republic, Poland and Turkey occupy the bottom four places. This month, the UK government unveiled the Carter Report, which places the communications industries at the centre of its plan to pull the UK out of recession. The centrepiece of the report is a suggestion that every home in the UK should have broadband access by 2012, when the Olympics will be held in London. Despite the tough financial environment, EPM software provider Tribold managed to secure 11 million US dollars in funding from Intel Capital, DFJ Esprit and Eden Ventures. And UK BSS firm Cerulean has gone all convergent, launching its new total convergence architecture for convergent billing based on the TMF's telecom application map, as well as Mediator Plus, a new convergent online and offline mediation system. In Africa, Egyptian operator Mobinil reported slower growth, as roaming revenues declined in line with a drop in the number of tourists. While Telecom Egypt is still said to be on the hunt of acquisitions in the Middle East and North Africa region, in Southern Africa, BT was awarded a South African telecoms license, paving the way for the UK incumbent to expand the range of business network services. Reports out of Nigeria indicate that it has now overtaken South Africa as Africa's largest telecoms market with the biggest subscriber base. In North America, Verizon lost its customer switching lawsuit, although it was not all bad news for the company. Analysts say it could benefit from up to 1.6 billion US dollars of tax credits as part of the economic stimulus plan. Also in North America, Research in Motion's bid to acquire Certicom for around 106.5 million US dollars was successful. Certicom apparently rejected a lower bid from Verisign. Other big news is Nortel going into Chapter 11. Like a number of big firms currently in difficulty, 
Nortel's been given a helping hand by government, which has pledged to give it 24 million US dollars so that it can emerge from bankruptcy. BSS OSS vendor Amdocs reported a 22% decline in net income for its first quarter of 2009, despite revenue being up 2%. Docs's US revenues were up, but those for Europe and the rest of the world both fell. Also this month, Acecom and Telescience revealed their new name, Ventrac. And Gartner released a report by Philip Redman, which pointed out that the 3G networks of all four major US wireless carriers deliver slower speeds than customers expect. The firm said it has received the most complaints about AT&T's network. Gartner's findings point to many factors behind the less than satisfactory speeds. Mexican mobile operator, America Mobile, plans $3 billion US dollars of capital expenditure to expand its network capacity. The operator says it aims to add 19 million new customers. Cuban communications minister, Ramiro Valdez, said that Cuba intended to expand access to the internet to its citizens, but had been held back by technological and economic factors. Valdez said that this was expected to change when Venezuela completed a 930-mile-long fiber-optic link to Cuba next year. Currently, use of the internet is restricted because access is through an expensive satellite connection. The ITU estimates that only 2.1% of the population has access to the internet. China has announced that it intends to spend around 59 billion US dollars on 3G networks over the next three years. According to the report in the Shanghai Daily, the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology said that the investment will allow all cities and most counties in the country to have 3G mobile network coverage. While uptake is predicted to be buoyant, you can't help but wonder what the effect of exploding phones is likely to have. There was another incident this month, this time fatal. The incidents are alleged to be caused by rogue counterfeit batteries. Japan's telecom market is forecast to grow modestly to 2013, according to a report from Pyramid Research. The firm says growth will be stimulated by uptake of IPTV, voice over IP and mobile data services. However, Docomo Q3 net profit dropped 30% to 1.111 trillion yen. This was attributed to an alarming 31% decline in handset sales. In Australia, Vodafone and 3 announced they would merge in an unexpected move that will see the number 3 and 4 mobile players combine. Meanwhile, Telstra are apparently hunting for a new CEO. Rumour suggests it's likely to be an external candidate. Singtel bought 175 million Wareed shares for 75 million US dollars. The cash injection will fund Wareed's network expansion. And Philippine long distance telephone, PLDT, remains optimistic. Its chairman, Manuel V. Pangilinan, said it is expected to hit its 37 billion peso target core earnings for 2008. Results will be announced 3rd of March. While Pangilinan acknowledges it will be a tough year, he says income tax reductions will have a positive effect on earnings. The company is looking to expand its subscriber base by 3 to 4 million this year. At the end of 2008, it had 35.2 million mobile customers, a year-on-year growth rate of 17.3%. And in the run-up to this month's Mobile World Congress, the GSMA announced that the number of mobile phone connections had crossed the 4 billion mark worldwide. It forecasts this will grow to 6 billion by 2013. GSMA points out that the number of connections does not map directly onto the number of users, however. In some markets, users may have multiple phones. In others, though, phones may be shared between users. 
The GSMA said that around 100 million connections were now mobile broadband, referring to data connections using the HSPA standard. So welcome to Danny Dix from Innovation Observatory. Danny is a long-time industry analyst and now analyzes telecoms and green energy markets. Um, we also have Mike Frain, who's the chairman of the charging and control vendor Volubil, and Steve Chase, a CMO of the Interconnect Routing and Information Exchange vendor Telarix. So welcome, everyone. So Mike, what, what caught your eye this month in the press? To be honest, Teresa, I've been kind of keeping an eye out on, on what the governments are doing in terms of these bailout packages they're offering to banks, what they're doing to help the motor industry, etc. And I'm also kind of keeping an interesting eye on, on the way some of the people are spending this money. Obviously, people like RPS and, and, and others spending money on refurbishing offices and things. That kind of brings me to an interesting point where in, in a bull market, there's, there's, there's a lot of growth and there's a lot of money around. And to some degree, that, that creates a, a model where people are fueling further growth and sometimes you get some greed in that and everyone obviously focuses on, on corporate greed and there's a lot being spoken about that but I think what people are sometimes neglecting is there's also been some government greed in there so you know because there's been a lot of money around governments have kind of stuck their hand into lots of things and, and taxed lots of things and created uh, opportunities to, to earn more money for themselves swelled out their own coffers and spent that money on, on all sorts of things and you know now that the world needs a correction, and obviously everyone's talking about how the banks need to restructure and, and, and all that type of stuff. <clears throat> I do worry that nothing's happening about looking how government really needs to restructure. So it itself has created a, a, an infrastructure around the financial situation that existed when there was a lot of money around. And if they don't get themselves restructured, that's going to be a problem. And I kind of also think about the way they're dealing with some of these things, you know, reducing VAT, um, you know, um, I don't know, the interest rates where they are and, and, and the kind of rules they're trying to put in place. I just think that too much governed intervention isn't going to fix anything for any of us, and particularly in the telco industry. You know, there's got to be a layer of regulation that's obviously quite clear. But, um, you know, I'm not sure government are well positioned to fix all of the world's problems. I somehow think that if they were to recognize their own contribution to the problems we have today in terms of, you know, too much interference in some cases, charging too much. If you look at the car industry and say, well, why is in the mess? Well, you know, if you look at how much fuel tax there is and all kinds of other import duties, etc., the vast majority of the money people spend on services is, is by making it financially attractive for people to offer those services. Nothing else will really work. I mean, the standout news for me this month was the, the was Nortel filing for Chapter 11, and uh, at the same time, um, you've got Ericsson announcing that uh, they've they've laid off 5,000 people last year, but they've they've actually announced that their their revenues are up about 11 percent, the sales are up about 11 percent. So, so when you look at this network equipment provider market, you know there's there's already been considerable uh, mergers and acquisitions activity. I mean, we've seen Al Alcatel and Lucent merge, Nokia and Siemens have formed this this joint venture, Nokia Siemens Networks, and yep. you know Ericsson and bought at Marconi. Um, so, so there's a lot of that been going on. And I, and I guess the big question that I have is, you know, is the network equipment provider market the right sort of shape now to, to serve the service providers' needs? And, and this comes back to the point that you're making, I think, that, um, you know, when we're looking at these interventions by government, a, a lot of these interventions are about stimulating that market. They're about broadband build-outs, etc. And is this the most appropriate way that government should be stimulating the telecoms market? Yeah, I don't. I don't think they should be enforcing those things on on the market because at the end of the day, you know, if there's a 
if there's a if there's a real mark and a real demand out there, then clearly you know people will will fulfil that need. It's as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And if people have disposable income to spend on that because they're not spending on other things, they will basically consume and demand broadband from their suppliers. It'll happen naturally. So I, I just think they're kind of trying to fix problems at the wrong level, basically. If they gave everyone a tax cut so they had more money to spend on things, they'd spend the money on the things they really wanted and needed in their lives to improve their lives, and broadband would be one of those things. So I just think they kind of look at these things upside down. In terms of your question about you know the network prov- um, infrastructure providers, you know if you look at the problems that that Nortel is almost like you know something that's been kicking around for a long time. You know the fact they're going into Chapter 11 is not exactly news. Everyone's known they've been in trouble for some time. Mm-hmm. So I think what's happened when you get these mega mergers, they sometimes work and they sometimes just don't work. And and also when if they if they put two big companies together, if they're not very very aggressive about cutting costs and rationalising products and doing some of the really really hard things, then there's no rationale for putting two big companies together, and then you can almost drag them both down. And I think to some degree some of these mega mergers, you know, debatably have having well you know history shows they don't always work. So I don't think it's necessary that, that the whole in, you know the industry does obviously need to restructure because there was. You know, too many suppliers for too many buyers, basically, and and then that's kind of coming right. So you almost find a natural kind of you know leakage of some of the players out there because there were just too many people trying to you know sell too little. I mean, to too few people, to too few buyers. Well, I think it's a bit difficult to say what the immediate future holds for the network equipment providers. I mean, we've we've seen mixed results, as you say, Teresa. Um, I noticed just this week that uh, Motorola's figures were were not so good, um, and as you say, Sony Ericsson not not so bad. So uh, it's difficult to call it. Um, I think it's one to keep an eye on, but I, I don't think any of us would like to put our head above the parapet and say, "Yep, that's the next one to go," or "Yep, those two are going to get together." It's it's just too difficult to call. So, Steve, what do you think about the noises that have been coming out of the UK and the US governments in terms of? a telecom stimulation package, which largely seemed to be taking the shape of a, a wider rollout of broadband technology. Well, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that both the UK and the United States are both at this point in their history of deciding we need to relook and reexamine how we implement a broadband policy. In fact, one of the things that has been quite interesting over here that I'd like to talk a little bit about is the Obama administration's view on telecommunications policy. I mean, you have to imagine this is, has to be one of the most tech-savvy presidents uh, we've had in recent history. I mean, the Obama campaign um, really rewrote the books in terms of leveraging cell phone texting and the Internet just to raise money and connect with all the supporters that he had across the United States. And, of course, I couldn't help but hear uh, a couple of weeks ago um, he was in a, a bit of a discussion with the Secret Service on how he could keep his BlackBerry and now they've figured out a way to uh, secure his BlackBerry so he can continue texting all of his uh, friends and colleagues. But I think if you look here, you know, one of the things um, that's in the Carter Report and also here is you know, how do you stimulate broadband? And where this is coming up in the United States, of course, is in this large $800 billion plus stimulus package. Uh, and you know, Obama said very clearly that one of his first priorities was going to be a national broadband policy. In fact, he actually even mentioned it in the inaugural address. But the problem is, I think, and you mentioned in the Carter Report, uh, what we've heard is, you know, there's a huge cost to this. I mean, over here in the United States, it's estimated that a national broadband policy, which really increases the reach, the speed, the usage of the Internet in the United States, could cost anywhere between 20 to $40 billion. 
so what has happened in this newest stimulus package that's just come out from the U.S. Congress, there's about $6 billion uh, set aside to help start the broadband policy. And it's important because you know, in this plan, they're really trying to use the broadband policy to create jobs, uh, but at the same time, get more people to use the Internet. Uh, there's actually a proposal right, right now to stimulate demand for uh, broadband by getting healthcare organizations to get tax breaks if they start to expand the range of services they offer online. Now, overall, I think the most important thing for the U.S. is they need to get their U.S. broadband standing back up. I mean, we used to be fourth in the world, and today I think we're down to 15th behind most of us in Europe and, and Asia PAC. And if you kind of look at where the policy is, they're going to go ahead and set $6 billion out and hope that $2.8 of that billion is taken by small little carriers in rural areas in the United States to go ahead and start bringing broadband to people who have never even had access to high-speed Internet. And I think that you're going to see that start off. Uh, there's also talk of having the federal government help uh, startups and other new companies with broadband, especially in wireless broadband. They're looking at even maybe helping them underwrite some bonds so that they could get the money they need to start wireless broadband in some of these rural areas. One other thing that I think is important in, in Obama's administration, so you've got this national broadband policy, but we're also seeing changes um, at the FCC. And for those who are not familiar with the FCC, it's the Federal Communications Commission. And it oversees everything from cable to telecom providers to even the radio waves. And with the new administration coming in, they get to actually appoint uh, members from the Democratic Party uh, to serve on that. And so there's a lot of discussions going on on what kind of changes are going to implement in the next few years that might affect telecommunications company or even an Internet company. One of the hot topics here is net neutrality, uh, where you have uh, network providers who may have in the past kind of interfered with content or perhaps limited the speed based on the current negotiations or contracts they have with other content providers. Well, that's going to be one of the top issues for the FCC to tackle. And you may or may not have heard of it. It didn't receive a lot of press during this election cycle. But the FCC found out that Comcast had violated some federal laws when it blocked customers for sharing large files and online videos. Well, there's no doubt that Comcast is going to appeal that decision. Uh, and you, I think you're going to see the FCC and Congress take an active role to decide once and for all what does net neutrality really mean. Uh, another very important issue I think you're going to see is mergers and acquisitions. And as we've talked about you know, on the um, network side of uh, network providers, the Nortels, the Algapel Lucens, um, certainly over here you know, there's, there's more talk of continuing consolidation with telecom providers or even maybe cable companies with the telecom provider. Uh, I think you're going to see a lot more analysis and scrutiny with a new FCC on any mergers and acquisitions. Over the past eight years, uh, the uh, Bush administration's FCC was more, I think, uh, forgiving and saw a real need to bring some companies together. Uh, but I don't think you're going to see that in this, uh, in this administration. So those are just some of the changes I think we're going to start seeing in the next um, couple of years, certainly under the uh, Obama administration and their view of uh, telecommunications policy. Steve, do you think, I mean, obviously, you know, from what you're saying, you think you, you're, you're seeing significant effects from Obama um, becoming president over in the U.S., but what do you think the international aspects of that, how do you think those changes in the U.S. market are going to affect, you know, those of us living in the rest of the world? 
Well, I certainly think, you know, if you go back on the, uh, on the national broadband policy, the fact is that you have so many people who really don't have access to high-speed Internet. Um, they've been unable to really enjoy the benefit. One of the things that's uh, certainly more popular here than ever before is Skype, using obviously the, the Internet to make long-distance calls. But what's really happened is you've got this disenfranchised area uh, or parts of the United States that, because of their limited access to the Internet, haven't been able to take advantage of that. And so they're paying you know, much higher costs in terms of making long distance, or else they're just not making long distance or international calls at all. So I think you know, if, if broadband policy goes through, I think you're going to see a lot more activities that are going to be pushed through to these rural areas. And in turn, they can then participate in really the, the global Internet, um, whether it's you know, using Skype to make calls to international locations or even you know, purchasing things overseas. But I think you know, anything that stimulates demand and interest across these rural areas so they can become part of the more global Internet community is going to be helpful. Yes, of course, uh, infrastructure investment uh, in the telecoms area, which Obama is talking about, is likely to be copied in other countries around the world, developed economies anyway. In fact, we've been doing some work on CapEx plans region by region, country by country, and that's going to be a significant uh, factor in the developed market. But interestingly, in developing markets, um, there's likely still to be quite a lot of CapEx going on. So. For equipment vendors, I think uh, Obama and other um, interventions of that kind are going to be important. But vendors themselves should continue to look for the developing markets in, in BRIC and other uh, countries too, because that's where the hotspots are likely to be. Okay, moving on. Danny, what have you found for us? Well, I've noticed uh, that at the end of January, Cisco had bought Richard Zeta Building Intelligence, which is a company that supplies middleware that integrates building management applications with enterprise IT infrastructure. Uh, and also, at the same time, they announced some technology of their own that's called EnergyWise. And this measures and controls the energy consumption of any IP-connected device. Uh, at the moment, EnergyWise supports Cisco's catalyst switches, but it can be added to other devices as well. And, of course, the, uh, Cisco will be integrating this with the Richard Zeta products. So how do you think that, that affects the, the Telesperience then, Danny? Uh, well, I think there's a, a couple of things here. Um, first, telecom operators themselves are big energy consumers, and technology like this can help them to reduce their own OPEX and their carbon footprint. But Second, it's possible for them to offer remote monitoring and control of communications and IT equipment for energy efficiency purposes to other large enterprises as well. That's, um, that's a managed services opportunity that should be attractive to quite a lot of big companies, uh, particularly those with large numbers of sites. Okay, the whole intelligent buildings area is, is, is of interest to us actually and how telecom services can be used to, to enhance the customer experience. Uh, for those listeners that are interested, there's a, there's a free article available from our website which also contains a case study of how Westfield London has embedded telecoms and IT into its building and how it's going to use it. It's, it's experimenting with a variety of telecom services and I think it's clear that there's considerable scope for innovation you know, beyond the, the likes of, of just heating, ventilation and air conditioning here. Yeah, sure. I, I agree with that. It's interesting to see that there's quite a lot of these integrated communications, IT and building automation um, opportunities uh, coming uh, to the fore now. Uh, and I think green 
issues like this are still definitely on the agenda, both for telecom operators uh, and their customers. Um, for instance, you know, big energy users in, here in the UK, and that would include telecom operators and call center providers, they're soon going to have to work under the carbon reduction commitment scheme. Uh, and that means they'll have to buy licenses to emit carbon. And of course, there's equivalent schemes in other countries too. Thanks for that, everyone. Next, Teresa talks to Pete Sokolov about the current state of M&A in the telecoms market. Joining us in this issue of Telesperience, we have Pete Sokoloff, the MD of Peter A. Sokoloff & Company, which advises on corporate mergers, acquisitions and debt and equity placements. Founded in 1997 by Pete and Annie Sokoloff, the firm has rapidly achieved international standing by covering the security and telecommunications industries. So welcome to Telesperience, Pete. Can you start by telling us what the difference is between a merger and an acquisition? I've seen quite a few where something is presented as a merger, only to find out later it's really an acquisition. You know, Teresa, I get asked that question all the time. Strictly speaking, an acquisition occurs when a buying entity acquires a selling entity and thereafter controls it. So most mergers are also acquisitions. The only time a merger would also would not also be considered an acquisition is when a marriage of equals takes place, so neither party is viewed in control. Technically, a merger is either a combination of two companies to form a new company or the absorption of the assets and liabilities of the selling company by the buying company after which the corporate entity, which was formerly the selling company, ceases to exist. This is most often done for tax purposes. hope that's not too confusing to you. The term merger is often used to describe the transactions of the media, customers, and employees. It, you know, it just sounds better than saying acquisition. It creates the illusion of a win-win situation where both sides get respect and credit. Perhaps out of sensitivity to the seller's feelings or in an attempt to correctly position the transaction, it's called a merger rather than an acquisition. The parties spin the story this way, to focus attention on the benefits of combining resources, management, and employees. A true merger, which is not also an acquisition, suggests a marriage of equals or almost equals. Nearly meeting this parameter, a couple of major telecoms deals you'll be familiar with. AT&T and SBC and Alcatel was The AT&T-SBC transaction was portrayed for marketing purposes with some interesting spin. Clearly, SBC was the acquirer, but they changed the name of the combined company to AT&T but it's generally understood that SBC's managers and policies rule the roost of the combined company. Alcatel-Lucent is a fascinating story. Despite the obvious fact that Alcatel was acquiring Lucent, the transaction was called a merger, and the new company was duly christened Alcatel-Lucent. A great deal of effort went into an integration that arranged managers in both organizations on a tit-for-tat basis. The chairman was Alcatel, the CEO Lucent. Various divisions were placed under alternating Alcatel and Lucent managers. The chain of command in many areas was purposely set up so an Alcatel employee would report to a Lucent employee, who would report to an Alcatel employee, who would report to a Lucent employee, and so on. <laughs> so, Teresa, now you know the secret. Virtually every merger is also an acquisition. A true pure merger, which would be a merger of equals, is quite rare. <laughs> okay, that's cleared that up nicely for me. Um, you know, we've been hearing a lot about the fact that M&A volumes are down at the moment because of the credit crunch. Um, but on the other hand, we're hearing that it's a great time to acquire. So, so what's your view of the current telecoms M&A situation? Well, clearly the M&A market has been negatively impacted by reduced credit availability. Those firms such as large private equity outfits who rely on leverage to make their return on investment thresholds have greatly reduced their presence in the M&A market overall, much less the telecom sector. Strategic buyers at the operator level have not been as badly impacted. Traditionally, telecoms operators have utilized their strong recurring cash flows to secure high levels of debt. 
Right now, the major U.S. and European telcos have been hoarding cash and reducing debt. As an example, in the boom times, we saw telecom companies borrowing at levels exceeding five times earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. Today, most of these companies are at two times or less. Therefore, watch for at least one more major acquisition announcement in 2009 as consolidation among the Tier 1 operators continues. Due to the fact that they are trading at low multiples, Quest and Sprint in America could become target, and even BT Group in the UK could find itself sending off suitors. As far as vendors to the telecom industry, the major hardware, software, and professional services firms continue to review potential acquisitions from a strategic perspective, i.e. adding to their portfolio by acquiring technology, geography, and new customer bases. We will continue to see selective acquisitions in this area, but the reality of low valuations that set in really after the tech boom busted with everything else in 2000 and 2003 remains unchanged. It is dangerous to think that the current market cycle will somehow produce a buyer's bonanza of great companies selling at distressed prices. If you are the board of a growing profitable company, you are not likely to accept a low valuation just because the overall market outlook is currently discouraging. We encourage buyers to think strategically and pay up for the right company. Leave the bottom fishing to the turnaround experts who are willing to take the risk of buying a broken business which is forced to sell because they can no longer raise more money to survive. That said, it is a great time to be acquiring. Expanding when the competition is paralyzed with indecision has always been a successful action taken by the smartest investors and CEOs. Simply put, those who worry about their stock price today and do nothing to expand their businesses are destined to be someone else's acquisition in the future. In the last sort of 10 or 15 years, we've seen a, a cycle that's been fueled considerably by the need to grow. And then another one which was due to fire, fire sales after the dot-com bust like you've just spoken about. And, and lately, we've seen some of the specific verticals consolidating and some of the bigger firms rounding out their offerings or, or entering new markets via M&A. So these financial issues aside, where do you think the telecoms market is in terms of this M&A cycle? And what do you think the really important drivers are currently? Back at the beginning of 1999, I wrote an article detailing the life cycle of industry. Basically, every industry begins with an initial period of heavy investing in development and growth. This is followed by a violent battle for market share. IPOs happen next. Then a golden age arrives as the battle for market share continues via heavy M&A. The IPOs and the M&A drive valuations up and produce fortunes for the industry pioneers. Then a maturing takes place. Products become commoditized. Businesses start counting beans and optimizing profits. Growth slows. A long period of status quo with an ebb and flow of modest growth follows. This is the state of the telecoms market today. It has been a remarkable rapid rise to the current plateau. Those of us who lived through the last several decades have enjoyed the ride, but the telecom industry has gone from a fuel-guzzling Ferrari to a family hybrid where gas savings trump the adrenaline rush of the race. Now, there will continue to be bright spots, mostly new applications which will come along to utilize and monetize bandwidth. IPTV and certain wireless apps come to mind. They'll produce some excitement, but the excitement by and large will be short-lived in the market. The next phase in the industry lifecycle will be reinvention. We are seeing some of this already as traditional telecom apps move off the carrier networks and onto the Internet and Wi-Fi, with homes and businesses really being the final arbiter of usage. Now, obviously, when we talk about telecoms market, that, that's a pretty big place. So do you perceive there to be certain hotspots within particular technologies or geographical niches as regards M&A activity? Well, in this environment, new technology is interesting only to the degree that it facilitates more effective customer retention and acquisition and or lowers cost of operation. Since the industry is mature, the best path to growth is usually by grabbing the other guy's customers. Thus, marketing continues to be hot and firms who provide true difference-making technology in this area will find strong acceptance. 
Network revenue fallout and inefficiencies continue to hurt bottom lines. Technology, which does a better job of eliminating revenue leakage, as validated by real numbers, is also on the demand list for most operators. The third world and the multitudes of the world's population who have not yet purchased a mobile phone or used an internet connection present interesting challenges. How do you make profit from those who cannot afford to pay? Those operators who solve these problems, perhaps via government subsidies or by facilitating growth of local industry, stand to pioneer vast new riches while providing a revolution that has the potential to uplift many from poverty, illiteracy, and the other scourges of our world. Not low-hanging fruit by any measure, but I think it's worth a serious effort. Okay, well, a lot of the smaller vendors are obviously financed by equity firms. So can you tell us a bit about how the credit crunch is affecting this end of the market? What are their investors saying to them, and how is this affecting their strategy? And is there still investment capital out there for smaller firms? Mm. Generally, there is little new investment capital out there for small firms. We have heard from many who have failed in finding capital and now need to explore M&A. Often, M&A is not a viable course because the same elements which made them unattractive to investors will also be noticed by buyers. Our advice to these firms is to work hard and smart, build revenues, customer bases, and profitability, and then try again. The M&A market will likely be interested, even though today the investor market remains much less so. From the investment side, do you think it's a good time to be investing in telecoms currently? Well, as a rule, my firm does not advise public investors, so I must refrain from answering this question directly. I will say that communication will always be the linchpin of success on this planet Earth, and those who provide the best means of communication will always be successful. I would encourage any investor to do their due diligence, evaluate management above all else, and then see if you can support management's vision for top line and earnings growth and decide accordingly. So, Pete, then, uh, what are your top tips for successful M&A in the current market? Recognize that despite the headlines and fears for the future, mergers and acquisitions continues to be a necessary tool in the arsenal of growth for larger firms. Many economists will tell you that market share is more easily built in a down economy than an up one. Therefore, this is a great time to take advantage of competitors' paralysis and add market share via M&A. If you are contemplating selling a company, you should evaluate your business from an exterior perspective. Look at your business from the buyer's viewpoint. If there's a lot to like, it's a good time to sell. Unfortunately, many sellers think, why sell when my business is doing great? The problem here is that when business inevitably slows, buyer interest also wanes. I wrote a short article called The Right Time to Exit. It describes the major elements which make up the perfect storm, the absolute right time to sell. It's available on our website at www.sokolopco.com. My associates and I are always interested in hearing from both potential buyers and sellers. One quick story. We closed two acquisition transactions in October and November last year at the height of financial uncertainty. Neither was a fire sale. Both transactions were done for strategic purposes and will certainly increase market share and profits for each buyer. It is this spirit which we will continue to tap in the days ahead to bring success to our clients. Thanks for that, Pete. That was brilliant. Um, and anyone that would like to find out more about uh, Pete and uh, his company, you can check it out at sokoloffco.com. Um, he's also got a, a newsletter and valuation information that's available to uh, subscribers and an email newsletter that goes out weekly, I believe. We hope you've enjoyed this issue of Telesperience. Don't forget to check our website for related issues papers and please send your feedback, suggestions and press releases to editorial at telesperience.com. The next issue will be out mid-March, and if you'd like to be involved in that or subsequent issues, 
Details of how you can do so can be found at our website at telesperience.com. On behalf of myself, Darren Clements, and Teresa Cottam, I'd like to thank all the contributors to this issue, as well as all those who have provided their expertise and encouragement. It's February 2009, and you've been listening to Telesperience. Mm-hmm.